Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mr. Chief Justice, please the court. We know that children of prisoners benefit from access to their parents and the ability to see, hold, touch, talk to their parents. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. It's Saturday morning, and I'm standing on the yard at Folsom State Prison for women. It's not a usual Saturday at the prison. This Saturday in early May, children have been put on buses throughout the state and brought to see their mothers. Standing here in the middle of the yard, surrounded by infants, toddlers, and teens, all hugging their mothers and playing games of table tennis and basketball and soccer on the little bit of grass that exists here inside these 30-foot-high walls that are topped with razor wire. It's an unusual scene of incarcerated mothers spending time with their visiting children. No, I think the kids and you touch them and you say, it says the right danger. Separation of women and their children is fraught for everyone involved, including the prison system itself. Life of the Law sent reporter Audrey Quinn to look at some alternatives to this kind of traumatic separation. These programs are still few and far between, but they show there are ways that the system can lessen the punishment on young children as their mothers serve time. I was on my way to get a sonogram for the baby. The minute I turned on my car, they told me to get out the car. They put the handcuffs on me and took me in. This is Diana. She asked us not to use her last name. She's 23, from Queens, New York. And in January 2013, she found herself in a jail cell at Rikers Island, seven months pregnant. They told me that I was under arrest because of what my boyfriend did. I practically knew what he was doing, and I didn't confront anybody about it or tell anybody about it. Her boyfriend, the baby's father, he'd gone to jail 10 days earlier. He'd sold drugs to an undercover cop. The cop had come to their home, caught the wholesale on video. I was in my room minding my business when the officer came in and my boyfriend had called me and told me to pass him a bag that was in the room. And that's where the drugs came out of. So that's what I'm in the video doing, (laughs) just giving the black bag. For that, Diana ended up in Rikers facing a felony charge as an accomplice to a drug deal. She says in jail, nobody would really tell her what was going on. At first it was like, You know, I couldn't sleep. Um, I was scared of, you know, maybe if I'm sleeping, somebody decides to come behind me and, you know, hurt me or something because I'm pregnant and they feel like I can't defend myself. It's, it, it was really hard. 
Did you get medical care for like pregnancy? Yeah. They would give me my pills, uh, my prenatal pills. If I were to get sick or whatever, they would take care of me. They had their nurses that would help us. They fed us. I mean, the schedule wasn't all that great and the food wasn't all that great. But I would sometimes not even eat because the food was so nasty. Um, but, you know, I was pregnant. I had to feed my son, so I had to force myself to eat. Diana found out later that pregnant women at Rikers, they get taken to a hospital to give birth. But she didn't know that while she was at the jail. I was just thinking the crazy things that would go on if I was to give birth in there. I just thought, you know, honestly, they would take the baby away and either a family member had to pick him up and take care of him or the system took him. I was really scared. I didn't. I didn't want my baby to be born in jail. Diana's story is more common than you might expect. 4% of women prisoners enter prison pregnant. That results in thousands of babies born in the correctional system each year. But as far as what to do with these babies or their moms, the U.S. doesn't have any national policy. In most prisons, moms have to give up their infants within a few hours of birth. But for some incarcerated moms, there is another option. In most European countries, women can keep their newborns in prison with them through preschool age. It was the same in the US through the 1950s. They call it a prison nursery program. But by the 70s, most states had closed their prison nurseries. There are now just nine across the US. This is the sound of a prison nursery at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. It's recorded by North Country Public Radio. It's a maximum security prison in upstate New York. Bedford Hills has the oldest prison nursery in the country. Moms in the program, there's about a dozen of them. They stay with their babies in a separate wing from the other prisoners. In the morning, moms go off to their prison jobs. Babies go to the nursery, like other kids go to daycare. The moms also get parenting classes. My name is Mary Byrne. I'm a professor at Columbia University School of Nursing in New York. In 1998, some teaching work brought Byrne to Bedford Hills. So I discovered the prison nursery and was given a tour of it. My question was, is this okay? Is this a good idea? Byrne wondered if kids could develop normally after starting life in a prison. She'd heard advocates say keeping a baby in prison could help the mother-child bond. But no one had really scientifically researched that. So she decided to study prison nursery moms and their kids. To me, the one I would liken it to, as I watch the mothers raise their infants in this setting, is that it was very much like working mothers on the outside. Women who are pregnant when they come to Bedford Hills, they can apply for the prison nursery. Only a few get in. The rest have to give up their babies while they serve out their sentences. The prison superintendent at Bedford Hills, she makes that decision, who gets in. She looks at the woman's history, what type of crime she's committed. Moms get to keep their babies in prison for a year, sometimes longer if they're getting out soon. A Department of Corrections study had found having a baby in a prison nursery, it makes a woman twice as likely to stay out of prison later. But Byrne wasn't so sure about these babies, so she followed 75 of them as they re-entered the community, and she's kept following most of those kids until they're eight years old. She compared their development to kids in the general population. 
So the children overall did very well. Um, the children are, for the most part, in their grade for their age level and doing well in school. And their parents send us pictures and report cards unbidden and letters and are really so very proud of their children's achievements. Burns' most surprising finding has to do with something called attachment. There's a process that goes on through the first two years of a child's life related to being able to identify a primary caregiver, investing trust in that caregiver, and knowing that that caregiver will be there in times of fear or illness or loneliness. So the child can can wander away and try out new things, but has a secure base to return to and feel protected. Byrne interviewed moms in the nursery. She found most of them, they hadn't had this kind of secure attachment growing up. Then she tested the babies. There's this really complicated procedure for that. The mom and the baby go into a room. The mom comes and goes, a stranger comes and goes. And the researchers watch how the baby responds, how much the baby misses his mom, how stressed out he gets over the stranger, how much he plays with the toys in the room. There's this common idea researchers have about attachment. If you didn't have it growing up, you'll have a hard time giving it to your kids. But Byrne found 70% of these prison nursery babies, they form secure attachment with their moms. That's more than in the outside world. But despite these findings, prison nurseries are beyond rare. Once I counted up the number of spots in the entire United States, <laughs> um, I just summed up all the beds available in all the given state-level prison nurseries, and it was 135. So that's really not a number that is impressive at all. So, for all intents and purposes, a baby born to a mom in a U.S. prison is a baby that will not know their mom, maybe for a long while. Correctional facilities are supposed to be safe places where people who have been convicted of crimes are safely confined and possibly receive some rehabilitative services. That's Georgia Lerner. She leads the Women's Prison Association in New York. She says we shouldn't be asking prisons to provide support for moms and babies. They are not really places that are supposed to be schools, medical hospitals, child care facilities. They were not designed to provide all of these services. And it's really, I mean, it's one of the reasons I think it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to send so many people to prison when there are so many issues that could be better addressed in the community where we already have schools, we already have healthcare facilities, we already have mental health providers. The Women's Prison Association started in the early 1800s. Back then, they had to make sure women got their own prisons apart from men. These days, they focus on keeping women out of prison when possible. They work with judges and prosecutors and pull out offenders who might benefit more from alternative programs than jail. This is where we get back to Diana. After seven weeks at Rikers, she got out on bail just before she gave birth. Her grandmother took her in at her apartment in Queens. Diana was still going back and forth to court. Well, they offered me, if I wasn't to plead guilty, they would give me three to five years in prison. If Diana did plead guilty, she could get into a drug recovery program instead of doing time. I later learned this happens to a lot of drug offenders, even non-addicts like Diana. Then they brought the bad news that I had to leave the baby at home and I had to live in the program. 
It would be a residential program, and she didn't know how long she'd have to stay. But then the district attorney offered Diana a chance at the Women's Prison Association's program. They've convinced courts to try out more community-based alternatives to prison, programs that let women stay at home with their kids. The Women's Prison Association interviewed Diana to make sure she was a good fit, meaning that she was someone who might actually benefit from some guidance and that she wasn't a community threat. And that's where I sleep, and that's where he sleeps. I came out to meet Diana at her grandma's place in Queens. You take a bus from the subway to get there. But Diana, she insisted on picking me up from the station. She was the kind of driver who always lets other cars go first at the intersection. Her baby, he was five months old at this point. It's too bad he sounds like he's crying the whole time on tape, but really he was just trying to blab at me, smiling the whole time. Say hi. (laughs) He's a little tired, so he's kind of cranky. Diana got into the alternative program, so she's home with her son. It lasts six to eight months. She'll meet with a counselor, also go to group sessions. Man, she's on probation. I'm starting the program today. I'm not too sure exactly what I have to do, but... Whatever it is, I'm willing to do it, you know. It's better than being in jail. So it's a big opportunity for me. Even though alternative to incarceration programs are expanding, more and more women are still going to prison. The U.S. now incarcerates six times as many women as it did 30 years ago. And really, when you're talking about women in prison, you're usually talking about moms. Here's Tamarcraft Stolar. Okay, so um, I'm the director of the Women in Prison Project at the Correctional Association of New York. They monitor what's going on in women's prisons. 70%, 75% of incarcerated women are mothers. The vast majority of those mothers are primary caregivers. There are lots of dads in prison, too. But when a woman goes to prison, it's way more likely to leave kids parentless. If you had to pick probably a, a defining legacy of the incarceration of women, it would really be the destruction of families. But what do you say to people who say these are criminals, they shouldn't be with their kids? Yeah. Well, you know, tell that to the young man who was wishing for his mom to come home every year he blew out the candles for his birthday. Say that to any child who loves their parent, even when they've done things that are wrong. Come on, get up. Wake up. He can sit on his own now, but he can't stand yet. See? I went back to see Diana Hi. again, two months into her alternative to incarceration program. What has changed in the past two months? Honestly, yeah, I thought it was just going to be about jail and drugs, but it's not, you know. It's, it's more so learning about yourself and listening to other stories, you know. So I really like group. I honestly wish it wouldn't even be over. Diana's support group meets every Friday. Her counselor comes to the house three times a week. She has another four to six months to go. The length depends on how the judge thinks she's doing. Her boyfriend, he got sentenced to nine years upstate. Diana and the baby visit him every couple of weeks, but her counselor's helping her move on as a single parent. She's still living at her grandma's place, but she's working on getting financially stable. She's applying for jobs in retail. Uh, Just had an interview today, so we'll see how that goes. She's also thinking about going back to school, getting a degree. But for now, Diana says she just feels lucky to be with her son. He makes my day just go by faster, and 
exciting, I guess. He doesn't really cry much. He's just a happy baby, so I guess I'm blessed. <laughs> For Life of the Law, I'm Audrey Quinn. The new season of Orange is the New Black starts up in June of 2014. The series, produced by Netflix, depicts life in a federal prison for women. Its dark humor and plot twists have both surprised and disturbed viewers, but keeps them coming back. The show recently won a Peabody Award for being, quote, a complex, riveting character study in insights about femininity, race, power, and the politics inside and outside prison walls of mass incarceration. Some of those insights are about motherhood and pregnancy in prison. What is that? Oh. Oh, Maria might be in labor. What? Could you Google symptoms of labor? They're running bets. If I guess closest to the birth time, I could win a Twix. I want to make an educated guess. Isn't there a doctor in there? There's a nurse. He says that she's got to wait till her contractions are less than a minute apart to go to the hospital. That's cutting it pretty close. All right, here we go. Many of the scenes in Orange is the New Black seem absurd, but they're based on real life. Piper Kerman is the author of Orange is the New Black. She spent a year behind bars on federal drug-running charges, and her book is the basis for the TV series. She's now an activist and speaker on behalf of prisoner rights. Recently, I had a chance to speak with Kerman in San Francisco for the City Arts and Lectures series. Afterwards, I asked her about how pregnant women and mothers are treated in America's prisons. In every single prison that I was held in, there were pregnant women. Um, and watching them progress through their pregnancy was something sort of uh, heartbreaking as they tried to sort of take really good care of themselves and the baby. Not only did I witness this while I was incarcerated, I remember <clears throat> the first prison I ever visited after I'd been released. I was pregnant about eight months pregnant, and the person who had arranged the visit said, oh, there's one, someone I really want you to meet amongst, you know, this entire unit of women that I was talking with and visiting with. And she brought over a, another woman who is equally pregnant. And I remember just wishing that I could open up the ceiling and just, like, sort of fly out of there with her. Because she said, I'm really worried about the baby. I'm really worried about the delivery. I'm scared. And so I think any woman who has had a child knows that you go through all those emotions, even under the best of circumstances, you know, sort of uncertainty and really wanting to be the best mom possible and, you know, nervousness or fear about the physical aspects of labor. But to go through those emotions and experiences in such harsh conditions as is true of any prison in jail. And, you know, the quote unquote best prisons and jails I've ever been inside of are, have still been incredibly harsh environments is just terrible. And they know that stress for pregnant women has a terrible effect on the babies that they're going to bear. You know, it's not good for babies to be in to have stressed out moms, actually some of the latest autism numbers connect, you know, uh, prenatal stress and, and autism. Um, so the idea that we keep 
pregnant women in prison when so few of them have committed serious offenses seems inexcusable to me. And then when they have the child, what are we doing to the relationship between mothers and their children? Yeah, so it's devastating when an infant is taken away from a mother. Um, You know, it deprives both the mother and child of the opportunity to go through all of the really important biological bonding that is so necessary for for the most healthy sort of parent-child relationship. Um, It's obviously not good for the baby not to be able to nurse and to have breast milk um, and to have proximate, you know, proximity to the mother, you know, the touch of their mom. It's not good for women's health to go through afterbirth and all of the processes of, you know, your body slowly returning to normal, given the trauma of actually having your baby taken away from you. So... It's just devastating on so many fronts. And again, I just have to return to the fundamental point that most women are in prison or jail for not serious crimes. They are not dangerous (laughs) to anyone except sometimes themselves. And that there are just much more sensible, safe, and certainly humane ways for those children to come into the world. What kind of conditions can you see or have you witnessed in which parents had access to their children while they were in prison. I had a friend in Danbury, and she was pregnant, and her husband advocated vigorously and, you know, and tirelessly for her to go into a program called the Madre Program, which was in Connecticut. You know, so we were doing time in Danbury, Connecticut. It was a small halfway house program for pregnant mothers and a wonderful program The mothers got to leave the prison before they gave birth. Um, They lived part of their time in the halfway house, but then they could also potentially have passes to go home for some periods of time. They would have the baby, you know, with their family, with their partner, if there was a partner involved or with, you know, whoever their family is broadly writ. They were able to be with the baby, you know, that was a total of four months in the program. So they went home, you know, a couple of weeks before their labor, their due date. And then they were able to be with the baby for the first, you know, three months or a little bit more of life. An absolutely essential, you know, biologically necessary period for mother and child to bond and for both of them to be as healthy as possible. And then they had to come back to prison. And that was really hard. Fortunately, my friend was doing relatively short sentence, and so, you know, she was able to, event, you know, be home with her son, you know, within the first couple of years of his life. You know, that's the most humane setting that I've ever seen. I've also seen prison nurseries, which are definitely better than nothing, and that's—so um, I visited a prison nursery in Ohio, for example, where a pregnant mother is able to, you know, give birth—you know, she's able to sort of move into the nursery unit— It's still in prison, but, you know, it's a place that is much more appropriate for kids and for moms. She has the baby, and then those women were allowed to keep the baby with them for the first 18 months before the child would then have to go back outside to family members. So that's better than nothing, too. But I still believe very firmly that pregnant women should not be held in prison unless it's absolutely necessary for some public safety reason. And after they're pregnant, after they've had the baby, do you think that the mothers should have access to those children over long term? Oh, absolutely. We know that children of prisoners benefit from 
access to their parents and the ability to see, hold, touch, talk to their parents. And that's true even in households that may have been chaotic before the parent were was incarcerated. Um, but we know that kids benefit greatly from access to their birth parents. That was Piper Kerman, author of Orange is the New Black, My Year in a Woman's Prison. I caught up with her in San Francisco in March of 2014. This episode of Life of the Law was edited by Julia Barton with sound design and production by Caitlin Prest. Life of the Law is produced by Julia Barton, Mary Adkins, Katie Barnett, Shannon Heffernan, Caitlin Prest, Elisa Roth, Simone Seaver, Jillian Weinberger, and Phil Wilt. Our music is by Matthew Darr, Kyle Kaplan, and Todd McDonald. Our funding comes from you, our listeners, and from the Open Society Foundations, with special thanks to Thomas Hilbink. Thanks also to the International Media Project, our nonprofit fiscal sponsor. If you'd like to make an individual donation to Life of the Law or are considering becoming a sponsor of our podcast, visit lifeofthelaw.org. Hi, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. <laughs> uh, think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American married to a Colombian Mexican American and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. Vamos, let's do this. As we like to say, get to know yourself, America.